Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome one and all to More Perfect Union today the day after they break ground on the Obama Presidential Library, yay, we are going to look at presidential libraries. And we are being accompanied under the able guidance of one representative, Jeff Roy, who has in fact visited every single presidential library. I am envious, Jeff. I am jealous. I am beside myself. What can I say? It was one amazing road trip. Actually, several. <laughs> of course. And not always involving roads, too, by the way, just to be technical, and you'll put a fine point on it. But <laughs> nonetheless, you've done something that I think would have been a wonderful journey. Um, so that said, we are discussing presidential libraries, and we look forward to hearing all the ins and outs of your journey. Well, Pete, thank you. And uh, so glad to be with uh, Natalia and Michael uh, Walker-Jones on this, uh, this chat. Um, it's somewhat of an odd hobby, I'm told, um, but uh, it's probably one of the most fun things that, uh, that I have done traveling. It's about, I would say about 10,000 miles took me uh, five years to complete the journey, had to contend with a pandemic in the middle that closed all of the libraries uh, for a period of about, uh, about 15 months. Um, I had to deal with the government shutdown in 2019, which uh, uh, left one of the libraries closed in the middle of my journey. And how many times am I gonna get to Little Rock, Arkansas? But uh, guess what? Uh, we found a way to get in, uh, and the people were, couldn't have been more delightful to, to help uh, make that visit uh, meaningful. But, uh, you know, uh, let me just talk a little bit about what, what a presidential library is, uh, and I'm actually going to be doing a presentation in February at the Franklin Historical Museum on this. So if you want to hear more, uh, come and join us on February 14th. It happens to be Valentine's Day. So the program, name of the program is Love Letters to Presidents. Uh, a journey Let's all presidents. be there February 14th February at the Franklin 14th. Historical Museum to hear Jeff Roy and Put it on your calendar. the presidential libraries. It's it will be a gala you. event. <laughs> oh, With the title did like I, Love did Letters. Did I promote that well? <laughs> I was going to say, with the title like Love Letters to Presidents, is there going to be a scandal? Like, are you going to reveal some scandalous letters? <laughs> well, I will come no. if that's the case. Uh, well, you, you know something? We have to keep some things for uh, the audience to, to get them excited about coming. 
But, uh, you know, presidential libraries right now, there are 15 of them. And, you know, we have uh, 45, uh, 46 presidents. Um, but the, the presidential library system did not begin uh, until 1939. Prior to 1939, presidential records and papers and artifacts and gifts were actually the property of the president. And uh, they could do with them what they wanted. And a lot of them got lost, burned, um, you know, otherwise destroyed, sold at auction, became private property. Uh, and uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had recognized uh, the danger of losing all this valuable history. So he decided that he was going to donate all of his papers uh, to the United States government and uh, establish a library and museum to house all of his papers. And uh, uh, Harry Truman followed in his footsteps and said, uh, you know, I'm going to do the same thing. And then finally, uh, by 1978, we we learned uh, in the 70s about some some tapes and some other papers that uh, had been destroyed. Uh, and Congress got around to enacting the Presidential Records Act of 1978, uh, establishing that uh, the presidential records would become property of the United States government and they would develop this official library system. So FDR really got the, uh, the wheels rolling. And I just want to share with you what he said at the dedication. Uh, ceremony. And FDR also happens to be uh, the only president that actually used his library as an office space. Most of these libraries are built long after the president leaves office. But uh, when he was doing the dedication of his library on June 30th, 1941, he said that the uh, purpose of a library is to bring together the records of the past and to house them in buildings where they will be preserved for the use of men and women in the future. And a nation must believe in three things. It must believe in the past, it must believe in the future, and it must above all believe in the capacity of its own people so to learn from the past that they can gain in judgment in creating their own future. And interestingly enough, uh, there is a Herbert Hoover Library, even though Herbert Hoover comes um, before FDR, um, he too decided that uh, there would be a library in his name, and, uh, but his, his library was the third one to open, uh, even though in the order of presidency, he was uh, first uh, to have a, a presidential library. And, and these buildings, and I think I... I jokingly referred to them as love letters to presidents. You know, there's some resistance to this notion that we should have these big monuments uh, to presidents. You know, we are a nation that broke free from kings. But I think that misses the point of what these libraries and museums are. First of all, they are receptacle for important historical documents. So anybody who wants to do uh, research can go to these libraries and get access to, uh, to presidential papers. In addition to being a repository for documents and materials, they're also uh, rather extravagant museums and they tell a history of the period uh, that that president occupied. And I will say that they're not always flattering. I mean, the, the Richard Nixon Library out in Yorba Linda, California has a whole section uh, devoted to Watergate and the troubles uh, that he went through. Uh, the libraries are typically erected 
in a place that has a, uh, the greatest connection to that president. Your Belinda is where Richard Nixon was born. So his uh, birth house, which was uh, something out of a Sears catalog, uh, is actually located on the grounds of uh, his library and museum. Herbert Hoover's is uh, located on the birthplace of, uh, of Herbert Hoover. Obviously, LBJ had great affection for Texas. His is on the uh, University of Texas uh, campus in Austin, Texas. And, you know, one of the, or actually two of the most obscure locations are Independence, Missouri, which is uh, where Harry Truman's uh, home and birthplace and library uh, are all located all in walking distance from one another. But the most difficult one to get to, I have to say, was Abilene, Kansas. Uh, looking for an excuse to go to Abilene, Kansas was uh, a difficult one. So how we decided to do that particular journey, I did a poll with my family and said, okay, I want to do the six most difficult libraries and museums, and it's going to be a road trip. It's going to be about a 1,400-mile road trip. Who's in? And only one hand was raised, and that was my oldest daughter. So uh, my my daughter and I got to get up early one morning, fly out to uh, Des Moines, Iowa, and begin our journey in Iowa. And we went from Herbert Hoover down to Independence, Missouri, to see Harry Truman, over to Abilene, Kansas, to see Dwight D. Eisenhower, then south to Texas. There were three libraries in Texas. We stopped in Oklahoma City on the way. That was the halfway point. And then we made it to uh, Dallas, Texas, for George W. Bush. Uh, then to College Station, Texas for George H.W. Bush, and then uh, over to Austin, Texas for LBJ. And uh, that was, you know, a difficult journey because they're all located in obscure places. Uh, going down to see Jimmy Carter in, in Atlanta, Georgia was extraordinary. And they, you know, did that visit in conjunction with uh, going to Plains, Georgia, uh, to Jimmy Carter's church to see him teach Sunday school, uh, which was an extraordinary to meet President Carter in person and learn a life lesson from him. And uh, one of my favorite photographs is uh, sitting there with uh, Jimmy and Rosalind Carter and getting a picture taken. But at that particular visit, while sitting there waiting for President Carter in, into the church walked Cory Booker and John Lewis. And uh, it was extraordinary to see uh, both of them there and uh, actually walked up to them to say, hey, uh, what brings you here? And they said, we're here for the same reason as you. We're here to listen to Jimmy Carter teach Sunday school. They weren't part of the program. They were in the audience. It was uh, an extraordinary visit. And of course, in our own hometown uh, of Boston, we have the JFK Library, uh, which sits out at uh, Columbia Point. Originally, they wanted to do it uh, in Cambridge near Harvard University, but there was a lot of controversy about that. So Jackie Kennedy, you know, was able to secure land on Columbia Point and ha happens to be an absolutely beautiful uh, location for it. And, uh, recently, the Edward M. Kennedy Institute uh, was opened right next door. So, you know, they're fabulous places to learn about history. And it's extraordinary for me because my history in this life begins in 1961. So I have been able to view my history by going to these museums and seeing what was happening at those points in my life. And I finished my last one 
on September 2nd of this year. And that was at the Gerald Ford Library in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, I do say I, I was glad that that was the last one because his whole presidency in that period of time uh, was instrumental in, in my life and really taught me a lot about our government. Uh, as a 13-year-old kid witnessing the resignation of a president and being concerned that our government was on the verge of a collapse and that how, in, uh, how we would endure this type of movement at the highest level of government. But uh, watching America continue to grow and progress after that move and uh, seeing the extraordinary uh, measures that, that Gerald Ford took to bring the country together, he wasn't successful in winning his own term but he was successful in bringing people together at an extraordinary time and uh, you know, certainly rebuilt my confidence in government and certainly influenced my decision to get uh, more involved in government. And uh, I'm really proud to be a part of this government. And it was refreshing to see this and witness this uh, during that visit to, um, to the Ford Library. And so it's, uh, it's been a fascinating journey. And uh, I would love to uh, actually take any one of you uh, as a guest to come and visit the JFK Library and hopefully inspire you to uh, to want to take this journey. But uh, so glad we're going to talk about this today. And uh, but that I hope uh, lays the groundwork for a great discussion today. I'm in. I'm on the road trip. I'm there. We're going to go. Now, interestingly enough. The Kennedy Library is a museum, as well as you pointed out, and they reflect the history of the particular administration. And there are other museums. Some people know, for instance, that I'm associated with a broadcasting museum that's nearby. And we provided all of the technical support and the original vintage equipment to restage events in Kennedy's life, um, including uh, Follow on, for instance, the, the famous scene everyone knows where after Kennedy's assassination, there's a second shooting uh, where Ruby ends up getting shot on camera. And in fact, the museum owns that camera and set it up as an exhibit in the Kennedy Library. And, and we're also currently working with University of Maryland on an exhibit about Jackie Kennedy. Similarly, you may recall that she staged a program regarding the uh, restoration and redecoration of the White House. Uh, and all of that was then recreated uh, by the university. That's an ongoing exhibit right now that I think will run for the next couple of months. So a lot of these presidential libraries, uh, particularly the most recent ones in the television era, seek sometimes to reflect famous moments uh, in the particular administration. And sometimes they reach out for technical support uh, from us, right here in Little Franklin and Woonsocket. You know, it's interesting, too, that there are probably, Jeff, so many stories that are along that spectrum of quite uh, good and internationally relevant to humorous and sometimes sad associated with each one of these to some things that are not necessarily known to the public, but suddenly revealed 
one of the things that is always of curiosity to me is that when you were visiting, did you get a sense of the the popularity of the president based upon the fact, because all of these are done with private money, as you've already said. And did you get a sense of the popularity of the president based upon the donations that either come in or the support that they're able to garner? Well, I would say this. It's fascinating to see so much that I did not know about these presidents and stories that I was not aware of. And it's, it is amazing to see uh, what these libraries look like based on the amount of money that they're able to raise. So uh, I would categorize the uh, Herbert, Hoover, Herbert Hoover Museum as a, as a rather you know, small, uh, tucked away facility. And you compare and contrast that with uh, the LBJ Museum. Uh, for example, which is 10 stories high. It looks like this giant facility uh, on, a, on a campus of a major university in Texas. A absolute contrast in the uh, amount of resources that they had to put it together. And uh, the Obama Library, which they had the groundbreaking yesterday, is going to cost $830 million to construct. I haven't looked at the figures, but I can assure you that uh, the FDR facility and the, uh, the Hoover facility uh, didn't come anywhere near that. But I think the, the striking thing is the stories that we're not told. For example, uh, with Herbert Hoover, he was always associated in my history classes and in my learning with uh, the collapse of uh, the stock market and the crash in 1929. But nobody teaches you uh, the uh, humanitarian efforts that he made prior to being prior to being the president of the United States. How uh, after World War One, uh, he was charged with uh, reducing hunger in Europe, and uh, he was out in in Belgium, and he saved so many people by getting generating the resources to feed them. Knew nothing about that story. I knew nothing about the fact that you know he was an engineer. And uh, he worked to uh, develop the idea of, uh, I'm, I'm struggling with the word, but uh, making universal components that could fit in appliances or, or uh, bolts and wrenches so that there was uniformity in the pieces so that you could go to a store to buy a replacement part for uh, uh, an appliance or a device because of the work of uh, Herbert Hoover in, in trying to create uniformity so that people could fix things. Uh, you know, just fascinating to see those types of stories. Now, you know, I'm not sitting here as a big uh, Herbert Hoover fan. Uh, don't, don't get me wrong. But, uh, you know, the, the other thing to keep in mind, uh, uh, the, the thing I was looking forward to seeing down in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, at Jimmy Carter's library. I, I was dying to see the solar panels that had been removed from the roof of the West Wing in 1980 when Ronald Reagan came in. They, they're now museum artifacts. And the thing that strikes me, you know, in my current role uh, dealing with uh, climate change and energy, I just wonder 
if those solar panels had remained on the roof of the West Wing in 1980, and we had really explored solar uh, as an energy source beginning in 1980 with leadership from the top ends of our government, uh, if we'd be dealing with the climate crisis that we're dealing with today. To me, that was the beginning of folks saying climate change is a hoax and we're not going to put these silly solar panels on the West Wing. We're going to take them down. But that's what I wanted to see when I went to Mm -hmm. Atlanta, Georgia, because it tells a tremendous story. And there are those types of things uh, that appear in every library and, and at most of them, even the presidents and their wives are all uh, buried on the property. So uh, they're not only places that show their lives, they're the final resting places for them. And they chose, you know, like Ronald Reagan's library is high up on a mountain in Simi Valley in California, and just incredible views of, uh, uh, of the surrounding area. But that, you know, that encapsulates uh, how he lived. What's also interesting uh, is, um, and I don't think a lot of people understand this, but the modern presidential library really is an extension of the Library of Congress. That is, when you were talking about the preservation of presidential records, uh, Library of Congress, in fact, is actively involved uh, in relationship with each presidential library as they become established and what it is that actually gets restored and maintained in in the modern library. Jeff, you mentioned that their uh, presidents and their wives and other sort of people are, are there. You know, as, as, a, as a young woman uh, on this conversation, it is, you know, still painful that we haven't had a female president yet. But the role of wives, you know, of presidents has been important. You know, Eleanor Roosevelt in sort of shaping the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. You know, is there in these libraries a conversation around the people who supported them and shaped their lives, whether it was their wives, their children, other, you know, because otherwise I worry that we have this image of, you know, until obviously President Obama, the white male, you know, raising up without recognizing who were supporting that work. So I'd love to know, and I have only been to the the JFK library. I would love to join you there again, but also to some of the other ones. I would say absolutely tells the story and it's funny when I was watching part of um, Obama's remarks about his library, um, you know, he talked about uh, Michelle Obama and uh, he said, you're not going to just see ball gowns for Michelle Obama in this uh, library and museum. You're going to see all of the, uh, the great work uh, that she did. So uh, definitely more about that and uh, fresh on my mind. Uh, is all of the great work that uh, Betty Ford had done as uh, the first lady. And, uh, you know, there's quite a bit of her story told in that library. Uh, there's a cabinet room in the, uh, the Ford library that tells the story of all the people who made up, made up his cabinet. And uh, the first female labor secretary was under FDR, and Frances Perkins is celebrated uh, in the FDR library. So one of my favorite artifacts, and if you give me a moment, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share it with you because this is a piece. It's a letter that was in, I believe it's the Hoover Library, and I'm so glad you brought this topic up because I think it's important to hear it. And so 
Uh, Herbert Hoover spent his final years living in the uh, Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. But, uh, you know, presidents called upon him for his advice. And one of them was uh, was uh, Harry Truman. And uh, but one of the letters that uh, Herbert Hoover exchanged uh, with a young lady on September 10th of 1961, two days after the day I was born, as a matter of fact. But uh, he writes to my dear Kathy Selleck, I have your question. What are the chances of there ever being a woman president of the United States? And his response is, as a generalization, the men have not done too good a job of government in the world in the last 47 years. And the chances for the women are thereby increased. With good wishes to you, if you are a candidate for president about 30 years hence and have improved fitness in the meantime. Yours faithfully, uh, Herbert Hoover. And it's interesting that I was at that museum in 2016 when Hillary Clinton was on the verge of being the first uh, woman president. It didn't turn out that way, but that letter uh, occupies a, a, a spot in the um, in the book that I put together after all these journeys. And uh, I'm still hopeful we're going to get there. Uh, I, I'm still hopeful we're going to get a, a woman governor in Massachusetts. So uh, we're working on that as well. What is also interesting, as you you were talking a little while ago about uh, first ladies, and you're not just going to see ball gowns regarding Michelle Obama. I, for one, believe that the position of first lady is has grown so much in significance that, well, it's effectively a volunteer position. And I believe that it should be made more official and it should be paid. That's just me. You might want to comment, Jeff, too, on uh, the prominence of Hillary Clinton at the uh, Clinton Library in uh, uh, in Little Rock, and then if, if you sort of give us your uh, your your insights to uh, to that experience, then uh, I also have a uh, a couple of personal stories uh, about the Clinton Library as well. So, what was her role? Well, I, I, you may all recall that uh, she led the major effort to get health care reform in the United States. And she really took on that role and produced, uh, you know, an incredible report and laid the groundwork uh, for what became Obamacare. But, uh, you know, that's something that she took a tremendous leadership role in, uh, led all those efforts. And that's you know, that's just one of many. She was a real right hand to uh, President Bill Clinton. I don't think he would have been nearly as successful as he was without her uh, guidance or her intelligence, her leadership. Uh, that was a that was a true partnership. And and, and to me, uh, it exemplifies why I love this hobby so much, because I one thing I loved to study is leadership. And, uh, you know, how does this presidential library tour and discussion have to do with a more perfect union? Well, we studied those uh, who were in the seat of power and who were the leaders and what they did or failed to do uh, to drive us towards a more perfect union. And uh, it's looking at leadership through the lens uh, of these museums and the, uh, the crises that defined these leaders and how they responded uh, to those particular times. And that's the amazing thing 
you know, you get elected, you become the president, but oftentimes the events that surround your presidency are what end up defining you. Uh, the Vietnam War absolutely destroyed one of the most incredible presidencies of, of all time, and that was LBJ's presidency. He was responsible for more than a thousand pieces of legislation, which is, which, you know, dwarfs any other president in all time. And, uh, you know, things that we take for granted today, like Medicaid and consumer protection, and uh, uh, the list goes on and on. I actually keep a list on my wall of all of the uh, things that LBJ is responsible for. However, he his administration was mired in the Vietnam War. And uh, so he's more remembered for uh, being a failed leader because of uh, the Vietnam War. But uh, I think Robert Caro and uh, his biography series, we're anxiously awaiting volume five, uh, truly defines uh, what type of uh, a leader and what type of a president he was. And, uh, you know, I, I view him as probably one of the most successful, um, but history doesn't look at him kindly. I also think, though, that, you know, with respect to his era, and remember the, speaking in that day about the great society, and also what he did with respect to civil rights. Um, I personally tend to know that Vietnam was around him. And yes, there were mistakes made with respect to the war, but it's only one chapter of what I thought was, quite frankly, uh, a, a real powerful presidency. And you're right, the libraries tend to bring granularity and clarity to every single administration. And I think that that's really important. Also interesting at this point in time to consider a future library yet to be, which of course would be the Biden library. And while we are early in that administration, we see great success with COVID. Um, there are things swirling around his presidency even now with respect to how people feel about how well or how not well he's doing on COVID. And you know, the numbers are going up and down. And history is, at the end of the day, I think a clarifier. And I think these libraries serve to do that in spades. So it's interesting to ponder the future of, of how this administration will be viewed. Yes, reflecting back on Hillary, I, I think that she was probably manifest as one of the most powerful first ladies. And if she was to be effective with respect to advancing healthcare, had the first lady's role in that day been something more official, more defined by the government, she might have had more political sway to be able to affect some change. You know, we can always look in hindsight about what tools people had sociologically and, and politically to make change, particularly what women were able to do and not do in that day. And uh, you know, even now, Dr. Jill Biden is out. She's the first lady. She's the first first lady who actually goes to work every single day to do something besides being involved in government. Now, consider what she might do if she were actually a government employee. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with you about allowing first rate ladies to, you know, but I, I mean, there is precedent. And interestingly, on the global scale, there have been a lot of female leaders, heads of state, prime ministers who were 
first ladies in a previous, you know, so there is something to be said about no one individual and Jeff, I don't know, maybe you can speak from your experience, personal experience in terms of your partnership, you know, really politicians rely on that partnership. But, you know, I do want to talk about um, how far behind we are in the US. You know, we had heads of states and prime ministers who were female in the, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, Indira Gandhi, um, you know, we had Margaret Thatcher, uh, Isabel Perón, Golda Meir, uh, even, you know, places like Pakistan, again, sort of the, the spousal, you know, there have been, with Benazir Bhutto, there have been so many female heads of state or heads of government across the globe. Uh, grow um, Harlem Brundtland in Norway, who was a big climate and environmental lead. Um, you know, there have been, and why? Why in the U.S. are we so behind? And I don't know, Pete, if allowing for sort of a first lady to have an official role is what we need, or I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I mean, obviously, first ladies are capable, and I think they have, you know, staff. And so in some ways, they do have an official role because they have the supports they need. But I'm excited that, uh, you know, Dr. Jill Biden is out sort of teaching. That That is exciting to say that, you know, I'm not just a figurehead. I'm not going to wear the gowns. Well, Jill Biden is a government employee because she's a teacher in a community college, which uh, community colleges are uh, part of uh, the government. Uh, but I love the fact that she works outside of the White House. And, uh, you know, the other thing should, that should not be overlooked in this conversation is we have the second gentleman who's going around. Uh, he actually was in Milford uh, just last week uh, reading to uh, children at an elementary school. And you know what? He's carrying on his ceremonial role as the second gentleman and uh, it's inspiring to see. And uh, just last night, I was I was at an event and I was touched. There was a, a little girl there, a sixth grader, and uh, she was talking to me and so excited that she said, uh, for my for my school class, I had to pick uh, an American person, uh, a historical figure to write a paper about. And uh, she said, I chose Michelle Obama. And uh, I'm sitting there saying, wow, how, how inspiring that a sixth grader would recognize uh, true leadership. Um, you know, and I think uh, Michelle Obama was a first lady plus because she did not sit back and take a, a side role in that administration. Uh, you know, she had her own. Uh, areas that uh, she was focusing on, she was inspiring, great to uh, great to see speak, uh, and really inspired so many young women that uh, you know I was absolutely touched talking with this sixth grader about uh, how she was going to be um, you know doing her paper on that, and I learned that I had no idea that uh, becoming, which is Michelle Obama's uh, book. Uh, was actually, they made a kid's version of that book. I had no idea. So um, hopefully that young lady will uh, will pick that book up and use it for her research. My father sent that book to all his uh, granddaughters uh, oh, who are like that. 11 and, you know, and the younger ones. So it's, it was kind of exciting to receive that in the mail. I didn't know that there was a young adult version of The Coming. It yeah. was great. It's fantastic. Michael, hey, you know, I am I been dying to hear your story about the Clinton Library. Don't keep us on edge any longer. 
Well, uh, well, two things before we get to the Clinton Library, let's talk about one of the. Uh, let me talk about one of the Clintons because I think, from a historical point of view, being an outgoing and engaged first lady is what cost Hillary Clinton uh, the presidency because for the next thirty years. Having watched her up close, the Republican and the conservative elements in this country uh, mounted a war against her. She was so effective, and it was by a very small margin that they lost a fight for health insurance, uh, universal health insurance. And her leadership, however, demonstrated how effective a woman could lead a movement uh, in the face of all of that testosterone that she had to fight through in order to just get to the ideas that uh, were promulgated. Uh, And don't forget, they got extremely close to the point of even designing the cards, uh, having detail around the, uh, uh, the way that the healthcare would operate. Uh, so I think she set herself up as a target, and it's unf- and it's unfortunate because I think the uh, the target was set on her back because she was so competent. But it played itself out as they were fearful that she was going to be one of the first potential women uh, uh, to not only seek the presidency but win the presidency, especially once she won uh, the Senate seat in New York. Now, having said that, I was uh, I uh, when I worked in in uh, Arkansas, uh, <clears throat> I was a friend of the Clintons, more so Bill than uh, than Hillary, uh, and worked in his campaign. And it was right at the end of his campaign for president that I moved to Massachusetts. And in the course of his presidency, in both terms, two things happened. One, uh, I was invited. Uh, to the inauguration, which my current uh, position allowed me to go. uh, And I was extremely supported by the teachers of Massachusetts to go and participate in the inauguration. However, uh, my 12-year-old daughter at the time was not very excited about going. And and so uh, my wife, uh, my first wife and I had gotten a divorce. And so what had happened was she, my daughter was with me and I was going to take her to the inauguration, but uh, she convinced me, no, dad, I don't really want to go. And so we ended up staying in Massachusetts. The second event was the Clinton Library. Uh, I was invited to the groundbreaking, couldn't make the groundbreaking. And then uh, we were invited to the uh, ceremony of the opening of the library to which uh, my wife and I were extremely elated because we were invited to the inside uh, celebration with the Clintons, uh, which was a limited exposure. And all of my friends from Arkansas, limited exposure uh, to the general public. In other words, I was going to be a VIP going to the opening of the library. Uh, And a quick aside, by the way, you know that this is the first and only house that the Clintons have ever built <laughs> because up to the end of his presidency, uh, they had never owned a house. Uh, Clintons, the, uh, the Clintons had been either in an apartment uh, or in the governor's mansion in Arkansas. And then when he moved from the governor's mansion of Arkansas into the White House for 
well over uh, 20 years, they had no property, basically, to speak of, no real estate property. So their first house that they bought was the uh, the place they bought in New York. But back to the uh, to the inauguration. So we're all set to go. And uh, we are have our plane tickets. And unfortunately, my wife's father ended up with uh, what we thought was a heart attack, uh, which then stopped that particular trip. Um, but while I was watching, my friends were calling me. <laughs> I had friends calling me from the row and they were waving and talking to me on the phone and say, Hey, can you see us? Uh, you know, the, you know, the cameras are focused on us now. So vicariously, I was there at the opening and uh, fortunately I have really nice friends in Arkansas who at least wanted to include us. So my story about the uh, Clinton library is one that is uh, for me uh, rather sad, but happy at the same time. Uh, you know, I was so elated and I still have the, uh, not only the invitations to the inauguration, but also to the uh, to the uh, opening of the uh, of the library. So uh, I don't know if it's all that exciting, but that's my uh, uh, that's my Clinton Library story. I love the personal touch, and um, you know, uh, one of the things that uh, I recall from going down that we met some folks uh, after we went to the library. We went up to the state house to look at the. Uh, Arkansas State House, which was relatively close by to the um, the Clinton Library, and uh, some of the folks who were there said, "Well, you know, while you're here, um, you ought to go eat at Doe's place, uh, which is the place where oh, Clinton yeah. and his campaign team would, uh, you know, have all their meetings and have all their meals." And so yeah. we said, "Okay, to tell us where it is." And uh, we drive down, and it's a it's a steakhouse. That steak is served family style. But uh, so we walk, uh, we drive down and we park the car and it's not in the nicest of neighborhoods in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I said, this cannot possibly be the place. And, uh, you know, the GPS points us and we look at this thing and it's a, a dilapidated building. And, you know, if you go into a meat locker, they have those plastic strips that are hanging down and you have to move the plastic strips to get through. That's the entrance to this place. And there's a security guard out front. And I said, what the hell are we going? This can't be it. Well, we walk in and uh, sure enough, it was Doe's place. And they served us family style steak and uh, just this big hunking piece of meat put on a plate and you, you divvy it up to uh, all the people at the table. And I said, you know, this is real you know, real life, uh, good living uh, down here yeah. in Little Rock, Arkansas. But, uh, you know, it gives you a flavor for the what these yeah. folks uh, did. During well, now, the campaign. well, now uh, for uh, uh, adding a little, uh, since you gave the play by play, let me add the color to this. <laughs> First off, that place is no more than four short blocks from the Capitol building. And it's actually three blocks from the place where I used to work, the Arkansas Education Association. Two, by telling me that you went in when they were serving steak, says to me, you were there at night, not during the daytime. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which is also revealing because during the daytime, they don't serve steak. They serve their burgers and their enchiladas and they serve all of the wonderful comfort foods. 
And then the third thing, the reason the guard there is at night is so that people don't double park because you will get tickets there. And the guard is there actually not for your safety, but for your, your edification and to keep people uh, from having their cars towed because it's a favorite place for the police to come at night and take people's cars away. Uh, so, uh, so having been a local and loved those eat place, uh, uh, you know, now the real story can be revealed, uh, <laughs> but that's, that's a great story. Simply beautiful. I mean, I, I, I absolutely loved being there and, uh, you know, it, it was wild to just think, you know, what happened, uh, in that building, uh, yeah. back in 1992 and, and earlier, and you know the political memorabilia that hangs on the wall in the place is is incredible. Several pictures of John Kerry down there, and letters from um, all public officials. But you know, it's it's remarkable uh, to have these places, and uh, you know to be able to go and visit and experience history. Yes. You know, not just read about it in a book, but walk around in the footsteps of, of others. I, I just find it fascinating. I, you know, as a trial lawyer, um, before I would go before a jury, I would insist on being in the scene where the incident, uh, it, my case is involved. I would spend, you know, a day or two just at that, that scene, making observations about uh, things that happen because it, it enables me to tell the story to the jury about what happened to my particular client. And I, I get that similar experience walking around uh, in the footsteps of giants. I always say that uh, I, I like to stand on the shoulders of giants, you know, great leaders and learn from what they did well and learn from what they did not so well. But to, to walk in their footsteps is, uh, is an exciting uh, experience and opportunity and uh, teaches me uh, about as much as I get from uh, reading the biographies, which are somebody else's view of having taken the same journey. I want, I want my view. I want to take my own journey. So, Jeff, I hope a book is coming uh, out at some point about that journey. But I do want to ask you a question. Did you have in mind when you started this journey that you were going to complete it? Or was that after like one or two or three libraries that you decided on that goal? Like, was it purposeful from the beginning or... At some point, it, you had visited so many that you had to complete them. Yeah, you know, it, it's uh, it's amazing. It was not uh, at the beginning. I think the first library I had been to was the FDR Library, and it was part of a a family journey. Um, you know, when when we went on vacations as a family, I always said um, we're going to turn it into a magical history tour, and we're going to visit someplace historical and. Uh, on this particular journey, we stopped in Hyde Park, New York, to visit uh, both FDR's uh, library and home, but also Val Kill, which was Eleanor Roosevelt's home. And then I went to the JFK, and uh, you know, after going to a couple of them, I said, you know, I want to do them all. And uh, the library system in 2011 developed a passport program to, uh, you know encourage you to visit all of them. So I visited FDR and them probably 10 or 15 years ago. It was in 2016 that I decided, you know what, this is going to be a journey. I'm going to go see everyone. I got my passport and uh, 
You have to get it stamped at each of those locations. So like my, the teenager that I am, I would bring my passport to these locations and, uh, and get them stamped. And uh, it took me five years to finish the journey at all of them. And uh, I learned that uh, I am one of only 2,500 people in the world that has made this journey. And uh, at the end of it, you go to your last library and you present your passport. Uh, they present you with a crystal seal and uh, your name gets recorded in the National Archives. Well, Gerald Ford was my last one and, and uh, that was in September. And I was very excited. I was with three of my house colleagues because they've been hearing me talk about this for years. And so they wanted to be there with me for the last one. Uh, and so we walk in. Now, keep in mind, all the libraries had been closed. This one reopened, but under COVID circumstances, which meant there were no employees from the United States government in the library. The only people working there were the security force that is not employed by the U.S. government. So I walk in very excited. I get my stamp on my passport, and I go up to the first person I see employed in the building, and it happens to be a security guard. I said, uh, I have my passport. It is completed. Who do I see about the uh, crystal seal? And he looked at me. He goes, I have no idea what you're talking about, sir. And oh, I was that's so anticlimactic. I was crushed. And, and uh, you know, my colleagues could see that, uh, you know, oh, my God, he, he's not going to be the same. His, his journey is, uh, is absolutely destroyed by this. So I had had the, the email of the director of the library. And uh, so I, I sent him an email. I said, I'm here. I, 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 oh, I am so excited yeah. to finish this journey. And uh, he didn't get back to me until about 9.30 that evening. And he said, uh, you know, can you meet me at the library tomorrow morning? And uh, I will uh, give you the seal and uh, we'll get you uh, recorded in the National Archives. But uh, I was like, oh, my God, I, I have been on this journey for five years. It's coming to an end, and it's not going to come to an end. Uh, Crisis averted. <laughs> I, oh. I'll tell you, my, my colleagues were like, oh, my God, he's, uh, what are we going to do with him? He's, uh, he's disturbed. Another piece of fallout from COVID. And, the, and the, you know, the fallout from the government shutdown in 2019 with the, with the Clinton Library, you know, walking up to that door and right. seeing a sign on the door that said uh, it's closed because of a government shutdown, disappointment. The, uh, right. the Gerald Ford uh, is, is uh, actually two facilities. So the museum is in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and the library is in Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor Michigan. So, uh, you know, we did the museum and we, on the way back to the airport, we stopped in Ann Arbor to go to the library. And sure enough, on the door of the, uh, the library was, we are closed because of COVID. Uh, so we could not get into the um, actual library, but, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, sad. And I, I like to buy a pin at each of these, uh, a lapel pin. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't you know it, the gift shop was closed. Was closed. And, and it's even the online gift shop is closed. So I'm still waiting for my lapel pin from the Ford Library. Can we go back to something, though, that, uh, that Natalia said? And I, I'd like to get everyone's perspective about this, because I, 
I recall one of first presidents as I was growing up that I was cognizant of uh, was Dwight Eisenhower. And I happened to not only like Dwight Eisenhower as a kid or as much as a little child can like a president. Everyone liked uh, <laughs> I like Ike. And it it also was very interesting that I was imprinted at the same time by black and white television with Golda Meir. I happened to think she was one of the coolest international leaders. And she reminded me of my great grandmother, which also imprinted me with the fact that you can have a woman leader who was strong, uh, determined, and was not necessarily young and fashionable. Uh, so here we have the next president after Eisenhower, this young, vibrant, uh, you know, uh, John Kennedy. And I was, as a kid, uh, now a teenager, very skeptical about him because of his youth compared to what I had been used to at that point, which was the sage and wisdom of men and women that had imprinted upon me at that time. And I guess when you look at this from an international standpoint, uh, Natalia, and you probably can give us this perspective as a, uh, as a youthful sort of observer, American politics, what was your impression and how were they perceived by young people in other parts of the world? I mean, it's a great question, Michael. And, you know, I am I'm turning 40. Um, so, you know, the first president that I remember, you know, it was Clinton and the scandal with, you know, Monica Lewinsky was sort of my teenage years. And, you know, so there was that gender kind of dimension too. being honest is is sort of a memory of like, you know, male leaders who actually behave bad towards young women. And, you know, that narrative at the time really uh, I'm, I'm really glad that Monica Lewinsky has kind of rewritten that narrative to really recognize that the power inequities there, uh, it was not her fault, even though, you know, she was just an intern and, you know, kind of like what power is about. So, you know, I'm, I'm being honest in, in bringing that up in the sense that, you know, young women who, like me, want to enter politics, the role models, and, you know, there are more role models right now, but the fact that we haven't had, um, you know, a female president, the fact that the United Nations, where I worked on, has never had uh, a female secretary general, you know, there are these exceptions. And the question is, are these exceptions there because they are the daughter or the former wife of an assassinated, you know, that, that sort of somehow violence plays into some of the stories of the women who have stepped up. But we see people like uh, right now, you know, the prime minister of New Zealand, who not only is you know a woman she is young she had a baby in office um i think she wasn't wed to her partner you know who are really breaking many many taboos around what does it mean to be a leader and has really stepped up not only on covid uh, but as you remember um during the the really horrific um sort of violent um shooting in new zealand that happened so you know i think i think there are you know, social media, we, t we talk a lot about that today. You know, we're not only looking at the U.S., but the U.S. is a superpower globally. And, you know, what does it say? What does it say globally that, you know, the power and the power that, that the U.S. kind of projects globally often links to the military and war and, and that sort of capacity. And, and unfortunately, that also is a masculine sort of 
dimension, whereas you know the soft power that we want to see, uh, you know, and I don't want to generalize, but we women leaders are often, um, you know, pulling their soft power on their networking, and I do, I do wonder what it would say for the international, what it would do for the international community if the U.S. had a female leader in terms of what does the power of the U.S. look like? Is it one of force of military, or is it one of being political kind of policy lead who? joins the world on issues like climate change you know i'm i'm hopeful but i do think that the, that the gender kind of dynamics do matter um on the this the scene and you know i we didn't talk about germany but you know angela merkel you know has been sort of an interesting uh leader too and and what her role has been in a room full of men um and all of that but maybe a conversation uh for another episode that is beyond libraries Jeff, thank you so much for your uh, for your efforts, my friend. And uh, you now have set, at least in my mind, a potential for one. Let's do a program at the uh, JFK Library uh, now that COVID. Let's hope in Massachusetts at least is starting to draw down a little bit. Maybe we can do a remote from there. Uh, and then the second piece is uh, I didn't realize that there was a passport with a reward at the end. Uh, and if there's anything I'm taking away from this is I'm going to see if I can get a passport. I may not be able to finish it like you, Jeff, but at least the journey itself might be worthwhile. Absolutely worthwhile. Um, you can get a passport at any of the, uh, any of the libraries and uh, you pick it up. Uh, that's five bucks. Best $5 you'll ever spend. And again, put on your calendars, February 14th. We're going to talk about love letters to president. I am so uh, excited that uh, you folks were willing to uh, indulge me on this conversation. I knew it would be uh, uplifting and I knew it would be uh, a great topic for us to uh, go back and forth on. And uh, I look forward to doing that show from the JFK Library with you. That wraps up another edition of More Perfect Union. I'm Peter J. with me, Jeff Roy, Natalie Alinos, and of course, Dr. Mike Walker, and always insightful discussion. And if you would like to know more about presidential libraries, we have a very able guide in the form of our representative, Jeff Roy. And we look forward to our trip to the presidential library and love to take you all along. This is Franklin Public Radio.